1944 is one of the most important days in the history of, of the world. It's the day of the D-Day invasion by the Allied forces on the beaches of Normandy, France, on Omaha Beach specifically. Everyone, when they talk about D-Day, remembers General Eisenhower, they remember Churchill, they remember the big names, but when people talk about D-Day, they miss out if they're not talking about the Spanish chicken farmer named Juan Garcia. And I know that sounds crazy, but let me fill you in a little bit about the story of Juan Garcia and why he's largely credited with the success of D-Day. You see, Juan Garcia grew up in a wealthy home, but eventually decided that wasn't the life for him and walked away from his family and tried, several, tried his hand at the hotel business. He tried his hand in the chicken farm business. He couldn't quite figure it out, but during the war, he saw the atrocities of the German people and knew that he wanted to do something to stop it. The problem for Garcia is he was a pacifist, so he didn't want to fight the war, but he thought there would be ways that he could use his, his gift of gab and his cunning to help the Allied forces defeat the Axis. And so he went to the British embassy there in Spain where he lived, and he said, I'd like to be a spy. I don't know um, how much you all know about spying and about MI5 as an agency in British intelligence, but I can tell you that walking into an office and saying, I'm here to be a spy, is probably not the place to start. And so he tried and he tried. He just wanted so badly to help that he said, I can offer my services. I'm, I'm fluent in many languages, blah, blah, blah. But the British just kept telling him, no, thank you, no, thank you. Well, eventually, he came up with a new plan. He wanted to help stop the Nazis however he could, and he decided that maybe for him the better plan of attack would be to go to the Germans and offer his services as a spy. And so he found a way to get into Abwehr, the, the German spy network, and he met a German spy, and he showed the guy. He said, listen, I have a passport. I have a visa. He said, I can do whatever you need. But his whole intention was to spy for the Germans and be a double agent for the British. And so the Germans bought into his scheme. They never were the wiser, but the British still were not interested. The Germans were sending, were sending Garcia code breakers. They were sending him secret information about the Germans, but the British just weren't having it. But Garcia was not deterred, and so he started making up spy things. And he would send letters to, messages to the Germans saying, there's an attack plan on this day at this time, and there's, there's, a, you know, there's possibly going to be an invasion here at this time. And so for months and months, they started, he started making things up, and he made up extra spies, and he, and he changed names of people, and he had this whole network of imaginary spies going with him and working with him. And eventually, MI5, the British intelligence, intercepted a note from him that told the Germans that there was an armada of ships leaving Italy and heading north. And what's crazy is he made that up, but it was really happening. And so the British intelligence got very nervous that there was a Nazi spy living among them, and they hunted down and found Juan Garcia and realized what a valuable asset he was because more than once his guesses had proved correct. And so the, the Germans had started to trust him more and more, and the British decided to take this double agent and use him for their benefit. You see, I, I don't know if you've thought much about D-Day or if you know much about D-Day, but D-Day was a day when thousands and hundreds of thousands of troops invaded the beaches of Normandy. But in 1944, it wasn't easy to get that many troops in one place at one time very quickly. 
And so it had been weeks and months of preparation leading up into the days of D-Day. And what the thing about it is, is when you gather a lot of people in a small place, others start to notice. And so Hitler had started to notice that up in the northern part of England, there seemed to be a large concentration of troops. And so he was figuring out that there was an attack coming that way, but he wasn't sure when or where. Garcia realized this, and he started to work with the British, with the British intelligence to develop a fake set of troops in the southern part of the country. It got so elaborate that they started building inflatable tanks, they built fake hospital facades, and they went crazy just building as much as they could to make it look as if there were as many troops, if not more, in the southern part of England preparing for an invasion. And so in the weeks and months leading up to D-Day, there's now two invasions, one in the south and one in the north. On June 6, 1944, the men storm Omaha Beach, And the Germans are taken by surprise. They weren't prepared for it. They didn't expect it because the troops in the South were what they had been focusing on. And so as the war starts and as as the invasion starts and things start to heat up, the Germans send back word to, to headquarters, we need help, we need help. But in the middle of this, Garcia intercepts that request. And he sends word that gets all the way to Hitler that says, don't go to the North. The North is a diversion. The South at Cali's that's where the invasion's going to happen. And the Germans are sending, sending requests for help over and over again to, to, to headquarters saying, please, we need help, we need help. Day three of D-Day is happening, and the Germans are still saying, we're being overrun, there's so many people, we desperately need help. And it gets so bad that they, send, they ask for them to send what's called the Panzer Division of the Nazi army. And that was the toughest, meanest, strongest division of, of the German army at the time. And as the Panzer Army is making its way to Normandy, Garcia gets word of this, and he knows the Panzer Army will shut down the invasion. And he contacts all of his contacts in Germany. He says, get word to the Fuhrer immediately. The South is going to be attacked on Calais any moment now. Do not send the Panzers to the North. And Hitler hears that Garcia told him this, and they trust him so implicitly that they divert the tanks back down to the south to prepare to fight a fake battle that never happens. And historians will tell you that the swing at D-Day is what changed the the course of the war and the reason the Allied forces eventually defeat the Axis. And Garcia lived his life mostly in in anonymity after that. It was on the 40th fortieth anniversary of of D-Day that there was a reunion of sorts on Omaha Beach. And an investigative reporter had tracked down Garcia and decided to bring him to Omaha Beach that day. And then all of a sudden, word started to spread. Garcia is here. Garcia is here. And hundreds of gray-haired men who had fought at D-Day surrounded Garcia with tears in their eyes and said, because of you, we won. Because of you, you saved our lives. And you hear a story like that, and and you think, wow. And it's one of the few instances in in history where I believe that lying saved lives. Um, A friend of mine last week, we were talking about this, and I was telling him this story, and he said, "I, I can think of another incident where lying saves lives all the time. And I was like, okay. And he he said, 
regularly, this, this is my friend, I would never do this kind of thing. He says, regularly, my wife will try something on and say, does this make me look fat? And he said, every time I lie, it saves my life. He's not a very good friend. I wouldn't recommend hanging out with him. We're, we're working on him. But, but there's this thing, right, about, about lies. And, and there's always this moment where we feel like a, a tension. I, I could lie at this moment right here. I, I could say this. I could do this. And, and everything would be smoothed over. Everything would go right if I just tell this small lie. It happens all the time. I read a study, and um, you take it for what it's worth, I read a study that there is a belief out there that almost one-third of all medical data is falsified or stretched in the truth. Part of the reason is because a lot of times they can't replicate the results of the study from the first time, and so one of the first reactions is to say, they must have been lying on that study, and the reason that they think this is is because there's so much pressure from so many different places to finalize and finish the studies and have results that at the end, they just sort of fudge it to be what it needs to be so that they can, so that they can get the funding and get the, and get the promotion that they need. I mean, think about your daily life. Think about, about the, the, the people around you and the life around you. Think about how often a lie is a central part of what you're doing, right? Even the little white lies that we tell at times, even the little white lies that we think we get away with, think about how often those are in your life. But as a follower of Jesus, we, we have an essential, an essential command from God to be honest, and to be people of integrity. In the Old Testament, when Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, the ways that God said, these are how you're close to God, one of the very first is do not lie. Right? And, and there's not an exception for us that, that if we are followers of Jesus, if we're people who worship God, we are supposed to be people of integrity. Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 10, but whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but whoever, but whoever takes crooked paths will be found out. You see, this is the thing about, about our in integrity, about our honesty, is that there's no way around telling the truth eventually. And I, I think that for most of us, we'd have to admit that there are times and there are moments in our lives where we're not honest, where we haven't told the complete truth, where things aren't really how we've made them seem. And I think there are, there are two main reasons that we lie. I think the first reason we lie is, is we lie to protect ourselves. We lie so that no one knows the truth about what happened. We lie so that we don't look like the bad guy. We lie so that we don't get in as much trouble as we thought we might. Last, last week, it was hot, one of those first hot days, and um, we decided to show Abel how to wash a car, because why you have kids is to do your chores for you. And um, so we had Abel, and he had the hose out, and he was spraying the car down and, and scrubbing it. And um, So then I, after he was done, I thought it, he would think it was fun to play a game where I run around the yard with the hose and spray him. And he thought it was hilarious, and he loved it. But I had my phone in my pocket, I had my watch on, I wasn't really prepared to get to get wet, and I said, okay, you can't spray dad, like, this isn't how this game goes, because I'm the boss, right, and, um, but then we decided that there was a bunch of pollen on the front porch that we wanted to spray off, and so I sent him around to the front porch to, to spray off the porch, and I said, and I said again, I said, listen, you have the hose, daddy's not looking, do not spray dad, 
And I, and I went back around the corner to pull some weeds and to, to kind of get, uh, get set on what we were doing next. And all of a sudden, my head gets sprayed by the water. And I thought, oh, what? And then it goes down my arm and my leg. And, and the, the hose is just being managed all the way down my body. And I, Abel! And I come around the corner and he looks at me. He says, Daddy, I didn't mean to spray you. And I was like, are you sure? And he looked at me. No, Daddy, it was an accident. And I'm like, okay, what part of it was an accident, buddy, when you sprayed me in the head or when you then soaked all of me? And he says, no, daddy, it was an accident. And it's this moment, right? If you're a parent or if you were a kid who lied, at some point you know, like, now you're in deep, right? And you better come up with something. And he was like, I didn't mean to, but... And I looked at him one more time. I was like, buddy, this is your last chance. And he says, okay, daddy, I sprayed you on purpose. And so then we got to go through that thing where you say, listen, you would have been in this much trouble for having sprayed me with a hose, but now that you told a lie, you're in a lot of trouble. And, and, and I took the hose and I said, stand still, and I sprayed the heck out of him and made him pay for it. But it was this moment, right? I mean, like, he's done it a couple times now, but every time there's a lie and you get caught because four-year-olds are not that good at lying. But he lied to protect himself. Every week we take up a special collection called Janie's Jar, and we ask everybody, hey, if you're here, if you throw in a buck or two, we use that money to make a difference. And one of the things we try to do is we try to help people we know so that we make sure that our, our resources are best being managed. Occasionally we'll get a call from someone we don't know, um, and, and we'll help them on occasion, but we regularly try to help people we do know. But when, I, when I, I chuckle to myself, because when a stranger calls, a lot of them are repeat callers, and they've called before, or they've called other organizations, and I always chuckle because they'll launch into the, the story of why they need help, and, and almost inevitably they'll say, I have proof. And I chuckle because I was like, I never asked for proof. So the fact that you're offering proof without me asking for it makes me think that maybe that proof isn't really proof at all. And maybe you're just trying to protect yourself to make this happen the way you want. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most important pieces of, of Scripture. It's kind of Jesus' discourse on what it means to follow him. And there's all sorts of stuff in there about how important it is in your attitude and your life and your reflection. But what, what makes the cut is honesty. He says this in chapter 5, verse 33. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And I, I, if you're like me and you grew up in church, then, then you know this part because you know that when you would tell someone something and say, I swear I'll do it, your mom would smack your hand and say, we don't swear in this house. Some of you are thinking swear and you're thinking cuss words. Like we're talking about a totally different kind of swear here. But the, what, what Jesus is, is addressing is a very common practice in, in the first century when he's talking to people. You see, the, the Israelites believed the name of God to be incredibly sacred. And so if you, if you swore by God, 
that you would do something. You were saying, God can strike me down if I don't do this. It was an intense promise, right? But they found a way around that. And what you could do is you could swear, hmm, I swear by heaven that I'll get it done. And then it's a pretty intense sounding promise, but you don't believe it to be the same as swearing to God. Or you could swear on earth, or you could swear by the hair on your head. You know, if I swear by the hair on my head, if I don't get this done, I will go bald. Some of you maybe tried that. There's several of you today who are looking at me very intensely right now, and I don't think I can take any of you either, so... We won't, we won't continue down that line. But the, but the joke was, or the, 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 the reality was, is they, they would swear by something to make it look really intense and really true, but there was an escape clause. But what Jesus is saying in this moment is he's saying, listen, you should be such a person of integrity that you don't have to swear by anything. You should be such a person of integrity that you just say yes and people know you mean yes. That you should say no, and people know you mean no. And so it's a challenge to you and me 2,000 years later. If I say yes, do the people who hear me say yes believe it will happen? If I say no, do those people believe that I mean no? And as someone who follows Jesus, this is an important question for us to be able to answer. Is our yes yes, and is our no no? When I was thinking about this this week, I, I, I did some digging because one of the places that I bet most of us are prone to lying is, um, don't raise your hand, but is on our income taxes. It's a pretty easy place to get away with some stuff. You know, there's millions of us turning it in every year. There's no way they're going to catch all of you because I don't lie. Why would I? I'm just kidding, my accountant wouldn't let me anyway. But, um, but I, I was thinking about this and I did some digging and it turns out that in 1987, the IRS lost seven and a half million kids. They just disappeared. That sounds interesting, right? But here's what happened. In 1986, the IRS declared that next year, if you are going to claim a child on your taxes as a deduction, you have to provide their social security number so that they, the child can be verified. So all of a sudden, these families were going, yeah, we have 10 kids. The next year, in 1987, they're going, oh, 10, I'm sorry, that zero must have come out of nowhere. We actually just meant one. <laughs> um, and, and so there was this, this moment where in 1987, seven and a half million kids disappeared from IRS records because they weren't real. People were just claiming them as dependents in order to get the tax break. There were people, I also looked up the best claims. There was an actress who claimed her underwear as a business expense. And there were several, there have been multiple times where people have claimed an entire wedding as a business expense because they bought, brought, invited clients to the wedding. So if you're engaged, maybe it's something to think about. You'll get caught, but hey, you know, you shouldn't lie. So here's the thing though, right? We lie to protect ourselves. We lie, we lie so that we're the ones who win. We lie so that we're the ones who don't get caught. But I also think we lie to promote ourselves. We lie to promote ourselves because we want people to think we've got it all together. Because we want people to think that we're top-notch. Because we want people to think that we've got the look, we've got the touch, we've got the, the words, whatever it is. So we lie to promote ourselves. 
There's a story in the book of Acts, which is what happens right after Jesus ascends into heaven and the church kind of gets started. But what's crazy about the book of Acts is there are thousands of people who are in the city of Jerusalem when the church gets started and hear about Jesus, but they don't live in Jerusalem. They were there on on a journey there for a festival, but they hear about Jesus and everything changes and they don't want to go back home. So they find themselves staying in Jerusalem. And while they're staying in Jerusalem, they don't have a job, they don't have a home, they don't have any money. And so the church, this new church that's forming, rallies around them. And it says in Acts chapter 4 that no one owned anything. Everyone had it all in common together. But there's these two people in in particular in Acts chapter 5 named Ananias and Sapphira. And Ananias and Sapphira are part of this church. And they see this movement happening. And what's going on is people are selling land. They're selling property. They're selling anything they can. And they're bringing that money before the church. And in the first century, the way that they collected an offering was you would bring it in front of the church and you would say, for example, we sold all of our land. Here is all of the money from that purchase. This is how we're going to actually collect offering today. We're just going to have you come up one by one and say, this is a check I wrote for this much money. No? Okay, we won't try it. I just thought it would be worth a shot. Um, But what, you know, and there were people who came up and said, listen, we sold this much land, we're we're, we're giving half of it to the church. We sold this much land, we're giving all of it to the church. We did this, and we're going to give all of this to the church. Well, Ananias and Sapphira sold some land, but they were a little nervous about giving all of it to the church. And so they they got together to conspire, and they said, "Let's, let's not give all of it, but let's tell the church that we give all of it. And so Ananias, the husband, comes forward, and and, and Sapphira is off in another place. And Ananias comes forward, and he says, we sold our land, and this is all of the money that we got from selling it. And there in front of the church, he feels pretty high and mighty, right? He sold all of our land. We got, here's all of the money from selling it. And Peter, who, who is working through Jesus and through God in this moment, looks at him, and by the power of the Holy Spirit says, Ananias, you're lying. And Anna says, oh, no, no, this is all the money. And Peter says, you're lying. And Ananias falls dead on the floor. And they carry him out. And then continue, everyone continues things going as they were. And a few hours later, Sapphira comes in. She has no idea what's happened. She was, she was off somewhere else doing something else. But about three hours later, his wife comes in not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias paid for the land? Yes, Sapphira says, that is the price. But Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And Sapphira falls dead on the floor. And I, and I want to make sure we're clear. It's not because the money they gave wasn't enough. It's not because they didn't sell enough land. The reason that God strikes Ananias and Sapphira dead is because they stood in front of the church and said, listen, we're giving you all of it. This is all the money. It wasn't about the amount. It was about the integrity behind the amount. My grandfather used to say, before he passed, he'd say, if you really want to impress someone, impress them with your integrity. All you have is your integrity. And it's so true. 
But instead, we find ourselves so busy promoting how, how much scholarship money our kid got, even though we fudge it just a little bit at the end, you know, because they could have gotten a little more if they would have tried a little harder. So we'll just go ahead and say that number. We, we find ourselves promoting ourselves with, with how much of a promotion we got and how big of a deal it was. We find ourselves promoting ourselves by saying, you know what, I, I gave a lot to that charity. They've been calling me nonstop ever since because I gave so much. We find ourselves promoting ourselves not by totally lying, but just by stretching the truth just the tiniest bit. And we promote ourselves because we want to make sure that everyone else knows how good we have it. I think that there's no more visible way that people do that in 2018 than on social media. Um, It's amazing to me. How many of you parents lie all the time about how good your kid is? I don't believe any of you because my kids are bad. <laughs> but but we, we laugh when we were talking about this week, you know, parent, people who would say pregnancy was, was such a blessing and we were glowing the whole time and it was a magical experience. Like, I know every pregnant lady I've ever talked to don't use any of those words if they're telling the truth, right? Like, any parent I know who calls their kid a blessing also uses the word curse within the next sentence because they are awesome and magical and wonderful kids, but there's times where they need to have a babysitter or they won't make it through another day. But what we do on social media is we promote ourselves, and so we don't, we don't lie by telling things that aren't true. We just cover up the bad parts of the truth, right? It's kind of like if you were going out to dinner and you wanted everyone to be really impressed with how fancy the restaurant was, so you took a picture of the shrimp you were eating. I don't eat shrimp, but I've never actually seen someone eat it with a fork, but I've definitely never seen somebody with a steamer underneath to make the picture even better. Or if you can't quite afford it, but you want everybody to think you got the newest cell phone on the market. Or maybe on social media, you have a persona to keep up about what kind of person you are, and so you take a picture of of your car at the car wash because you want people to know you've really got it going on. Maybe you've always had trouble keeping up with the Joneses because the Joneses seem to have everything that you want and you don't want them to think that you're less than them, so you just kind of post a picture of your latest purse buy and and this way everybody knows you've got the name brand. Some of you aren't laughing because you're like, where did you get that picture of me? (laughs) But this is what we do, is we lie to promote ourselves. And we lie so that everyone else thinks that we've got it going on. But here's the trick. Here's the rub. The truth is we don't. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we want to impress, there's somebody who knows we're fake. There's somebody who knows we don't have it all together. There's somebody who knows that none of this is true. And so here's my challenge to you. My challenge to you is be okay with not being all the way okay. My challenge to you is admit once and for all, I don't have it all together. Admit that a lot of what I've shown you, a lot of what I've said is a facade. You see, I, I, always, I always chuckle when I think about this, um, but I, I believe that our church is an incredibly authentic place that I don't think this is the kind of place where you come to put on airs, and I don't think this is the kind of place where you have to pretend to be something you're not. But I also think that there's this moment where we all lie to each other and where you say, hey, how are you doing? And we always say, doing great. It doesn't matter that, you know, they're coming for my house next week. It doesn't matter that I can't pay my bills this month. 
doesn't matter that I got fired, and whatever it is, like, I'm doing great. And there's always this hesitancy for me, because, like, I don't always want us to, to make small talk awkward. <laughs> like, like, how are you doing? Well, let me tell you about how things are going right now. But there's an importance for us to have relationships and people around us where we can be authentic. Because you know what liars never say? Liars never say, I want to quit. I'm not okay. Liars never say, I'm weak, I'm tired. Liars never say, I'm stressed and I'm beaten up. Liars never say that because they're too busy protecting and promoting themselves. And so here's my challenge to, to us as people. My challenge to us as people is to be okay with using those phrases. It's to be okay with saying, you know what, I'm, I want to quit. I need to give up. My challenge to you is to, to be willing to say to people you trust and people you love, you know what, I'm, I'm tired. And I don't mean like I didn't sleep well last night. I mean like I've been doing this for 30 years and I'm just plain tired. My challenge to you is to be willing to admit, you know what, I'm weak. I'm not who I thought I was, and I'm not who people think I am. You see, my challenge to you is to be willing to admit that you aren't okay. Because here's the truth, guys. You're not. The reason you're here today is because you don't have it all together. The reason you're here today is because your life is broken and because your life is messed up. And the reason you're here is because Jesus came for you anyway. And so you can tell other people, you can tell your social media, you can tell the people around you that, that you've got it all together and everything's fine, but the truth will set you free. And the truth is I'm weak. The truth is I'm tired. The truth is without Jesus, I've done nothing. And so it's time for us to stop promoting and, and, and to stop protecting ourselves and admit it's because of Jesus. Whether you know it or not, that's what you do every week right here. You see, every week right at the end of the sermon, we, we pass the bread and we pass the cup, and it represents Jesus' body broken for us. It represents his blood poured out for us. But what it really truthfully represents is us admitting as people, you know what, I, I wasn't good enough. You know what, I, I'm not strong enough. I'm not well-behaved enough. I'm not a good enough listener. I'm not honest enough to follow Jesus on my own. I'm not good enough to get to God on my own. I needed Jesus to come to this world and to die for me. Remember that as we take the bread and take the cup that we weren't good enough.